trying to find uh, when when Mana was first written, but we started talking about uh, this a kind of utopia dystopia novella by Marshall Brain. Uh, tell me why the current pandemic crisis and the the political response is reminding you of that book. Well, um, you know, it's funny. I, I was just going to ask you when you first read it, because I can tell you that um, Mana was written in 2003, or it, was, uh, it began to be published in 2003. And if you go to the website right now, if you go to, you know, Marshall Brain's website, uh, you'll see it, it starts with um, uh, May 17th in Cary, North Carolina, that there's a, a, burger food, a Burger G fast food restaurant that, you know, began the automation sort of, uh, movement, but it, originally it said that it was May seventeenth, twenty ten. So he was mm. saying in seven years, uh, robots are going to, you know, begin to completely take over American society, and everyone's going to be out of work, and uh, there's going to be this American dystopia that's, uh, you know, that, that we all know and love, where uh, workers are getting crushed, and um, you know, even even more than they are today, and and uh, bosses will profit. Um, but because Marshall Brain is not, uh, let's say, not a socialist, not, not, a, not a Marxist, um, he looks at this uh, in the view of like uh, the singularity movement, the singularitarian movement. Um, and so, you know, he feels that this is like automation is coming and it's inevitable. And, and if only we handled it right, everything will be great. Um, and, you know, now we're seeing not in burger restaurants necessarily, but, you know, we just have was 6.6 million uh, file, filings for unemployment this week. Um, so we're, we're getting all the unemployment without uh, so much of the automation. But um, I, I've been thinking about MANA for a long time. Uh, I started researching a book that I never ended up writing, um, sort of about singularitarianism and um, its implications for Marxism. I, I started writing it in 2006. Um, and I, I went to a singularity conference in 2007. And I got to talk to a lot of the people and, and you know, sort of see what what that's like and, and the camps within the singularity movement. But um, there's, uh, there's a lot to talk about in terms of, you know, this, this imagined future. Um, you know, it was supposed to be 2010 that it began, uh, but it seems like uh, maybe we're a little bit behind schedule. Um, well, one of the things, uh, I, I read the book in late 2014, and I think our perspectives are a little bit different. I'm probably, I'm like more of a utopian socialist, and you told me that you're an anti-utopian Marxist, so I definitely want to dig into that. Um, but one thing really struck me, which is, in terms of automation and you know things like universal basic income, which I think are much more aligned uh, with like the Marshall Brain perspective, um, although in in his book, you know there's there's these, this dichotomy, right? One is like a carceral state where uh, you are controlled by uh, AIs that make sure that you you know clean as fast as other people who clean. If you don't do that, or if you're a professor who's not as good as other professors, like you end up basically in a, um, you know, 10 by 10 room. Uh, and if you go too far away from it, you wake up back in it uh, versus a utopia where like everyone has everything that they need because uh, AI and automation and robotics could provide everything you need. 
Uh, and so he's got these, these very big extremes. But something contemporary with these, and we just uh, talked on our last show with uh, Mark Paul from Data for Progress, and he was predicting 10 million uh, uh, un unemployed. And I think we've already hit that, like within days of releasing the, the podcast. And uh, and the need for a green stimulus. But what I've read from uh, more, uh, you know, non-visionary thinkers is that automation is was just waiting for a crisis that would make cheap labor uh, no longer a thing. Because as long as labor is incredibly inexpensive, uh, the capitalist system was willing to use uh, people instead of robots, instead of automation. But now... Uh, you know, I think especially because we're in a pandemic where uh, proximity of people is the vector, um, you know, you can see Amazon uh, adding workers, but also destroying whole sectors. Like we thought it was bad when Walmart or Amazon just existed. And now they have these massive forces leading to consolidation. So what are, what is your, like, what is the anti-utopian Marxism that comes out of this kind of crisis that, that you're thinking about? Uh, yeah, you know, I, um, I, I wonder about, you know, what the limits of our current capacity to automate things really is. And I guess we're mm. going to find out soon enough. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think a lot about like, um, you know, having gone back to MANA recently and, and read it, you know, like the, the removal of those dates I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, like, did you, you know, is, is he afraid to admit that, maybe 10 years after the fact that we have not, you know, automated everything and, and, you know, dumped our, our citizens into 10 by 10 rooms when they can't uh, outcompete a, a robot. I, I think when I say anti-utopia, um, what that means is that um, we don't have to imagine society from a tabula rasa, from like a, a totally blank slate that we create the ideal society from. And then, you know, we work from the current one to, you know, to create that. I think that's, that's one of the problems in the way we conceive of, you know, a political project is right. that, I, absolutely. Start from a, you know, from perfection and then like all these other sort of, you know, little imperfections on the road to utopia, you know, they, they take on sort of a different significance. I also grew up religious. So it's like, you know, it slides right into that box in your head. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's there's a deliverance aspect, uh, you know, that certainly singularitarians... And, and not the movie, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, a different, right, it, it, singularitarians believe that we're going to have deliverance in a religious sense, and uh, skeptics believe it's going to be more like the movie. Um, but I think <laughs> what's, what's going to end up happening is, uh, you know, with every project, we're going to make mistakes, and those mistakes will go on to have really long-lasting, terrible consequences. And even when we get things right, we're going to keep doing things right until they go wrong and then we won't be able to correct. You know, that's, that's how all sort of, not even just society, but just how human technology works. You know, we, mm. um, we keep using things until they're breaking limit and then we sort of throw our hands up and we said, well, this, it was supposed to work, you know, like I don't understand. Um, so one of the things uh, about this current moment is, you know, one, we're realizing exactly how much work is essential and how much is, you know, something else. Um, and we're, we're realizing sort of, um, you know, the difference between needs and wants. And um, that's a, a fundamental shift in how we see things. But 
when it comes to like organizing something, when it comes to bringing something out of the current moment, um, we always have to work with what we have. When we think about like the history of revolutions, whether it's Marxist or not Marxist or populist or uh, right wing or whatever, revolutions um, happen when, as my professor once told me, um, people will take arms up against the government when they don't know whether they're going to live or die tomorrow. Right. That's the point at which like an armed revolution becomes possible. But the other thing about revolutions is that they replicate the structures that were there before the revolution. Right. So like the um, the Communist Party in, in Russia, um, you know, the the organizing, the uh, the organization, the, the government that um, took power after the revolution had already been in place as, you know, the secretary of the Communist Party, which wasn't in power. Um, or if you look at like Afghanistan, the, you know, the, the um, communist government that took over the Saur revolution had been built out of the engineering department of Kabul University, but it also replicated the existing ethnic tensions that had existed in Afghanistan for years. Um, so, you know, we, we like to think that we can sort of wipe the slate clean and all the current problems are not going to be a problem because we're going to have evolved past that you know, somehow, and, and we're going to be, you know, new human beings and so forth. Um, and my feeling about utopianism is that when one person authors the utopia, the best you can hope for is it's utopia for that specific person. And <laughs> the worst that you can hope for is that it's hell for everybody else, right? Yeah. So, you know, like there's, there are people who, whose personalities become their political platform, and that's always dangerous. You can find like-minded people who agree with you about how things should be structured. And then the people who disagree with you are, are kind of like, they're a problem that's going to be dealt with later uh, through some means. Right. That's but probably I, the, the biggest uh, challenge for the left. And as I've got much more involved over the past uh, decade plus, um, you know, kind of, I would say I was radicalized by the Iraq war, but didn't start plugging into structures until like uh, the Obama presidency. And I think that's probably was an entry point for a lot of more, more mainstream folks, you know, who I didn't have exposure to radicalism from my parents. I got, uh, you know, kind of started calling myself a, uh, a Marxist when I was in at, at Berkeley, but I was still, you know, coming out of this uh, much more traditional or religious background. But as I've gotten deeper and deeper into the left or organized more, the fractures and the, uh, the kind of uh, strong, strongly held belief that another group is like not doing it right, uh, no matter the size of your group, um, is a real challenge. Do you, how, do we, how do we come through? Like right now, the left is facing two crises. We have a pandemic and we have uh, you know, Bernie Sanders falling behind in the Democratic primary. And, you know, giving the party plenty of room to do whatever it wants, right? Which is what it's always said it would do. Um, what do you, do you see, uh, if not utopias, uh, points of learning and light uh, in, in what's happening now? Yeah, you know, if you want to, I was thinking about like sort of, you know, what anti-utopian really means. I mean, you, you could, <laughs> if, I, I was thinking about like, uh, if there was a cliche that I could reduce it to, it's about the journey, not the destination, we may mm. never get to the perfect society, but mm. if we, you know, if we sort of, if we start working on something and we let that project evolve naturally, 
then it'll be much more resilient to the kinds of challenges that will sink other kinds of utopian projects um, than you know, if we just say, well, first we have to wait for everyone to be a good person and then we can have a, a good society, you know, or something right. like that. Yeah, no, that one's not like, going to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's, people are going to be, people will continue to be terrible and you have to figure out, you know, how, how to deal with that in, in a fair way. Um, you know, I just think about like, to go back to Mana for one second, um, he, uh, uh, Marshall, who, who I, I like a lot and I think is a really brilliant guy, um, also wrote at the same time that he was publishing Mana, um, also wrote this, uh, this thing about Robotic Nation, which I think was released about the same time. I started reading it. I didn't make it as far. Mana was like good sci-fi. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, sci-fi invents, you know, like think about Asimov's laws, like they're there to further a plot, you know, mm-hmm. like you, you, you create, you know, your, your perfect idea and then you, you have to complicate it as a sci-fi author with some sort of challenge that will like engage the reader. That's not how history works, you know, you know, these things are, are much uh, less orderly. So I, right. I was looking at, at his, uh, this is 2003, um, a robotic nation from from Marshall Brain. You can you can still find it, I'm sure. Um, and he says, uh, yes. Now imagine the near term future. In just a decade or two, we will begin to approach a point where CPU power rivals that of the human brain. Well, um, in 2015, yes. The, this this uh, sorry. This essay is entitled "Robots in 2015." In 2015, um, the uh, fastest supercomputer did almost get to the 38 petaflop figure that IBM likes to quote as the, you know, processing power of the human brain. And the next year it was blown past by a Chinese supercomputer that, um, you know, had 92 petaflops and, you know, like by 2016, we still haven't simulated the human brain. You know, we can do a lot, but we can't quite get there yet. You know, in the same way that like, um, an automated store still has to deal with idiots who can't, you know, like scan the pair properly, you know, like we, we, there's a lot of work that's been done in sort of teaching computers to interface with people. But in the other half is teaching humans to interface with computers. Right. Um, you know, so there's always going to be like, people will disappoint your, your idea of a perfect society. So how do we get around that? Um, in the same way, like you were talking about, how do we deal with, you know, the, the apparent uh, collapse of Bernie's electoral chances? Um, you know, I, I see a lot of people uh, saying that the election is rigged and that there are, you know, there are all these structural forces that were dragging Bernie down. And I don't doubt for a minute that some sort of skullduggery has, has happened, but we can never really confirm it. And, you know, it's sort of irrelevant now the same way that like, yeah, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote but that's not who, you know, what places the president into power. What we have to do, and fortunately this is a generational thing, is to take over the Democratic Party. If, mm. less the, if the people under 60 are the ones who are, um, you know, <laughs> who are voting for Bernie, or people under 50, let's say, uh, that's the future of the party. How soon will the future come? It really depends on, you know, a, a few factors, but one is, you know, how engaged people want to be with the Democratic Party that has screwed people over. Um, you know, that's, we're just going to have to do it. There's, a, there's a, a, an intrinsic problem in American politics, which is that um, because we were sort of the first, like, quote, unquote, modern democracy, 
we took the best available technology in the 18th century to set up our democracy. So that means first past the post, single party, single member elections. Oh, sorry, single, first past the post, single member elections. Only one person wins. Right. You know, you vote for president, it's a national election. Um, that's get, that will always end up with two major parties. It's uh, called Duverger's Law. Um, it, you know, it's just the math of it means that you're going to have a two-party system. Now, we could agitate for things like multiple preference, multiple member, you know, ranked choice voting, all these things. Um, and that might sort of shake things up a little bit. But in the short term, in reality, it's the people under 50 who feel cheated by the system who are going to have to take over the Democratic Party. And that's a process that will likely take, <clears throat> it's a process that will likely take too long for us, for it to save us from climate catastrophe. It certainly has taken us too long to save us from COVID-19. Right. Um, but we're going to have to rebuild from the ashes. And, and what we build is the thing that I wanted to talk about today. Um, what we build is going to be something that retains some structures from the before time. And it's going to uh, preserve some of the inequalities from before. Um, and so we have to deal with, you know, what's available and not sort of think about how great things could be. We have to figure out um, how to build a new economy from the tools that we have literally lying around the house right now. Right. So, um, you know, we, we talk about there are mutual aid networks and, uh, within um, left movements, we talk a lot about building dual power. And usually what that means is, yes, th we run people for elections, but you can't trust politicians, even if they're our guys. Uh, we have to do something else and build sort of direct demands to power. But I think that we need to move beyond even dual power, maybe uh, triple power, where we build um, economic systems, economic models, where we begin to start building a new economy before the revolution because even if you think that if you know if you believe there should be a violent revolution if you believe there should be a an electoral revolution if you believe that capitalism's intrinsic contradictions will cause it to crumble you need to have something existing at the precise moment that that change happens for people to latch on to it's the institutions which persist even after a revolution or or a paradigm shift or or things like that um, and that's what I think we um, on the left really need to engage with while we're doing the political projects, the electoral stuff, the pressure campaigns, the, the organizing, um, because those things are really sort of subtractive. Those are about taking, you know, taking things back from, uh, from existing power. But it's not about building our own economic power necessarily. And I think that's sort of the thing that, um, that is missing. And we're going to be sitting in our houses trying to figure this out, trying to figure out where, you know, forget about like the rent uh, is going to come from because that may not necessarily be our main concern. It's where, what we're going to eat, what we're going to fill our days with. How are we going to, you know, prepare to get back to work if at some point we are able to do so? And um, the supply chain and our industrial sector and, the way business works, these things are all subtly collapsing. Um, you know, well, what, so what frightens me is, is that uh, it's like the class system, you know, it's almost like uh, mon monarchy, you know, in these older 
systems of gross inequality are what we're falling back on in the as capitalism buckles under the strain of what's going on now. Are there yeah. individual yeah. We don't uh, have any like, alternative. No one has, has we haven't offered that alternative. Yeah. What is we your um plugging in, you know, like we have the DSA but as an individual, someone who's listening now, what would you urge them to do that, that you know, they maybe haven't thought of, particularly for maybe a more normie uh, leftist, you know, well, someone who's I, not well plugged in? Yeah, I, I think um, in the more immediate term, um, find mutual aid projects. I, I would say do it through DSA because I'm in DSA and I'm, uh, I can't really talk about everything that I do within DSA, but uh, it's a big part of my life and mm -hmm. my organizing. And, uh, you know, we do, we, we have pivoted to uh, COVID-19 stuff in a, a really big way. Um, but the mutual aid networks, and there is one near you, no matter where you are in the world. I saw, uh, there's, or, I, I just yeah. got an email from uh, my county DSA. And so I, I am, I will respond to that. But uh, I was surprised, like, uh, and it was nice to be reached out to from a local network. Yeah, I, you know, we're, we're doing that on a, on a large scale. And I think um, the mutual aid network, I feel, is, is really where like this new economy has to start. Because what is it doing? It's identifying immediate needs. And then, you know, like, once we have identified the need, we can begin to strategize about how to fulfill that need. You know, maybe in the short term, you know, the mutual aid is sort of, it, mutual aid is not the same thing as charity but we need to articulate why and how, you know, it's not just that we're pooling our resources. We have to figure out how to supply more resources as things become more scarce. You know, the, the thing about, um, the thing about Marshall brains, mana and singularitarianism and all that stuff is it depends on post scarcity. Right. And that's what I was interested in is like, what does Marxism look like? In a in a world of post scarcity, what have you um, listened at all to the the seriously wrong podcast? I I've become very enamored with their uh, concept of library know. socialism, which they've been developing for a few years. I think on that show, uh, I I will have to check it out. I'm I'm woefully behind on on my podcasts. Um, not going to the gym, uh, <laughs> staying at home, uh, watching the kids. Yeah, uh, you know, like the. <laughs> That's one of the, the few shows I, I listen to because uh, so many podcasts are like, there's people yelling, kind of uh, a lot of intensity, a lot of the popular <laughs> left podcasts are like that. And this one's like really happy, really loving, like really trying to, you know, they have uh, skits and it's one of those leftist comedy podcasts that have become tremendously popular, but they've been doing it for years. And this idea of library socialism is interesting because it's not about post-scarcity it's about um uh sharing abundance right and yes. like uh hey wouldn't it be nice to go out on a yacht but do you need your <laughs> own yacht and if you're a fanatic about yachts you should be the yacht captain who takes out you know everyone who wants to go out on a yacht like that would be like the kind of that's stretching the idea but it's basically taking uh, and they, I like it because they also talk about it being multi-generational. It's going to take hundreds of years to achieve. Yeah. It is a utopian vision, but it's a utopian vision built around uh, sharing and quality rather than mass consumption, which is what's so broken about our current system. Uh, that definitely and, seems like it's in line with what I, uh, you know, what I like. Um, you know, if we, if we think about like, uh, whatever the post-scarcity society looks like, if we ever get there, it's going to be built out of the scarce society. 
Yeah, that's, we're have that's to build a really it now key point. With the existing stuff. Right. So like, you know, even though we achieved, you know, the point where CPU power rivals that of the human brain, we didn't achieve the singularity. Um, yeah. Although I, I might, I might have a quibble about that depending on how long I can, I can uh, yammer on this podcast <laughs> uh, because I feel that the, in a certain sense, the singularity has already been achieved um, except that the, the artificial intelligence that everybody's been waiting for is the corporation. And it was sort of uh, uh, created as an independent unit in, was it 1884 in the Santa Clara decision? Um, wow, that is deep because uh, I, so I've had a small business for several years and the first couple of years were pretty hard because there are things that you have to put together. You have to figure out like accounting and taxes, like dealing with all the bureaucracies. But at the end of the day, I started believing that uh, it's amazing that through this organizational legal structure, I can put together all of the people I need to do a project. And it's like, it is this structure that is pre-existing, that is accepted by law, that allows me to be way more than I can be by myself. Yeah, you know, think about it. It's an artificial person. Mm -hmm. And so the, the knowledge that it, that, you know, that a corporation contains is artificial intelligence, you know, like it, we just happen to be, instead of transistors, it's human beings. Right, right. Because when I leave, my knowledge stays. I just had to negotiate a contract where I was like, yeah. okay, you can have the rights to my knowledge, but you can't own it in perpetuity where I can't use it because, I, you know, knowledge is a, reusable, uh, is a reusable artifact. Yeah, you know, and basically not only will it persist, but it's going to, um, you know, persist outside of you and combine with other knowledge within that corporation ways that you can't, uh, that you cannot fathom. So like all the right. stuff that all the stuff that they were talking about, the, the singularity will achieve and all the dystopian stuff that they talked about. It's already here. Yeah. It's been here for a hundred years. Right. It's just that now we're talking about, you know, like uh, the circuits getting a lot smaller, but you know, like the, the artificial person, you know, we talk about um, in singularitarian uh, terms, the, the nightmare is the, um, uh, the pink goo or, or the paperclip problem. The paperclip problem is really easy to understand. It's uh, you set an artificial intelligence to the task of making paperclips. That's goal one. And then it sort of figures out how to make those paperclips. Well, if you don't put limits on it, it's just going to turn everything in the universe into paperclips eventually. It will get so good at, at its job and that one thing that it does that, that, you know, in the same way that uh, Fantasia um, you know, Mickey Mouse uh, has access to the cauldron and it, it just keeps creating more and more uh, automatons. You know, like the, the corporation doesn't give a shit about you. It doesn't give a shit about its component parts or really anything else. It's there to, to make paper clips, in this case, profit. Well, right? that's and that's Amazon at this moment, because I'm saying like yeah. the 100,000 jobs they're adding are, are going to suck away a million or more uh, jobs that were were existing before because if you turn everyone into a warehouse worker or a delivery worker you can move products and goods much more efficiently i i think although you also see the grocery stores staying open you see you know but but really uh concentration of a certain kind of labor or a certain kind of good yeah yeah absolutely i mean like the thing is you know so we all become workers you know like warehouse workers for amazon then we can't afford all the wonderful things that Amazon wants to sell us. It's, right. It's, it, that's the Henry Ford problem uh, yeah, reverse, like, right? Like it, we just keep repeating these cycles of existing structures and, uh, and they elevate until they fall. Um, right. 
I think it's a super powerful point. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say like, and what saves us from, you know, the, the, the worst dystopia is the failure of capitalism. The, the cycles, the, you know, like the, those companies go bankrupt because they. Uh, you know, so that, yeah, we say that the, that the failure is inherent in the system, but perhaps the failure is one of the saving graces and, and why we don't already live in the negative version of Marshall Brain's uh, mana. Right. Somebody trips over the power cord to the AI and then, you know, all of a sudden it has to start over again. But I think like this, um, this ties back to one thing that I wanted to say about anti-utopian socialism. So I think um, the, the big problem with utopia, uh, as, as it's conceived by the people who think about things in utopian terms, is failure. The, the utopias are very rarely um, failure resistant. And that's, you know, that's always the big problem. I think about, you know, the, the communist uh, states, and I, uh, I have been to, to the Soviet Union, I, <laughs> um, and I, I witnessed it firsthand. Um, the, the failures, you know, are, are sort of like, those are the big catastrophes because the system is always supposed to work because it has, you know, sort of superior moral qualifications. Um, and so, you know, communism doesn't work when there's a failure. It's not failure. It's not uh, fault tolerant, as we say in the computer industry. Capitalism's great strength is that it doesn't work when it, you know, when it's completely successful. If there were perfect competition, profits would be driven to near or at zero, right? So what saves it is that it's not just fault tolerant; it's fault dependent. Wow. It has to, it, it has to work only you know it can only the inefficiencies work in the, the system are what keep right. it going yeah There's, you know one one inefficiency in, in that system is the middle class right these people who's who exist really only because of inefficiencies in the system all the middle managers that could be automated away all of the you know the middlemen the you know the resellers all the people who are squeezing that little bit out um, you know between the, the digital the organizers who are required to get people <laughs> to use the automation that's available Right, all, all that stuff, it, it's, it succeeds because it fails, right? So um, the book that I was writing when I was researching all this stuff and, and you know, sort of proposing my own anti-utopian utopia uh, would be that uh, if we, the economic model that I want to build is one that requires perfect competition as a precondition for entering the market, right? Mm. Because then we know the profits will be driven to add or near zero. And then we can build something out of that. Like, you know, how would it work if competition was perfected? And we see, I mean, like, look at the stock market now, um, or even 10 years ago, the, you know, the, the big companies are not the most, you know, the, like think about all the dot-coms that are not profitable, but they have huge market caps, right? That's, they success, their success depends on their failure. If they were actually to turn a profit, there wouldn't be a company. So, you know, they have to rely on the middle class, the small investor and all that stuff to, to shore that up. So when we're talking about building a new model, building a new society, building a new structure, a new institution, we need to talk about fault tolerance and we need to do it in a way that really um, takes into account the, the genius of capitalism's, you know, fault dependence. Um, so you know, I would love to build a, a, a marketplace and, you know, I'll, I'll get to it one of these days, um, you know, like a, like a Craigslist or something, uh, build a marketplace that, you know, that relies on perfect competition. 
because perfect competition is the thing that is grinding American industry to dust. You know, all of the, we can't compete with, you know, places that don't pay their laborers enough. We can't compete with, you know, places that don't have, uh, you know, regulations that require, you know, us devoting resources to keeping people alive and, and not destroying the environment. Um, you know, the global race to the bottom, that's part of the system. It's part of the, you know, the, uh, the successful flaw that makes it flourish. So, you know, that's the, the economic model that, uh, that I think we need to build. It can start with, you know, one jerk like me espousing some vague utopian notion, but it's not going to survive its first real problem if we don't make something, you know, if we don't really think about fault tolerance. So, you know, the same way that I, I've said before that disaster relief is the same as poverty relief and vice versa. These are the same kinds of problems, you know, like whether you're out of work because of automation or because of COVID-19 or because, you know, your some local government policy is like shut down, you know, the business you used to work at. Those causes sort of don't um, create any novel conditions. There's widespread unemployment. There's widespread poverty. There's widespread inefficient distribution of resources. Those things are all going to be pre-existing conditions, and they're always going to persist until we figure out something that um, that is fault tolerant, but can address the needs of, you know, a large enough majority that, you know, that people feel like keeping that system aloft. And it's going to right. have problems. And, you know, the, uh, the problems of the past are boring and scary. The problems of the future are new and terrifying. Um, we're not going to get rid of those problems. We can't obviate uh, bugs. We can just figure out a better system for addressing that. And I think that um, this is the moment where we all kind of have to get together and say, okay, we know that the current system is not working, but how do we build something out of these, you know, how do we take all this rotten fruit and make a pie out of it? You know, like how do we take these, these terrible conditions at present and get from here to there? Because if we presume utopia is, is the goal, you know, we're going to end up waiting for something that's never going to happen. Right. So we have to sort of embrace um, something that will let us deal with imperfections in a progressive evolutionary way. Um, you know, I think a lot about like the persistence of sexism and racism in, you know, in communist countries, you know, th there was some progress, but not enough progress. There was, you know, some like, th there was a, you know, a faint to internationalism or, you know, like, uh, equal rights, but it didn't always uh, work when it wasn't convenient for those in power. Um, you know, they, they reformed their entire industry, but, in the Soviet Union, for example, quotas used to be based on weight. So, uh, you know, the Central Planning Committee would get together and they would sort of issue a quota for, well, we need uh, 5,000 kilos of shoes. So you know what they used to do? They made heavier shoes, <laughs> right? So, like, you know, you've met the parameters that you've been given, but, like, maybe you don't want to work, you know, the extra hour a day making, you know, 100 more shoes. Just and that's the thing. I, I, I was um... – I'm not sure who we were talking to. I think it was on the show maybe several episodes back, but about the concept of, you know, markets within a socialist society, the fact that you don't have to throw out structures that do work, like markets exist to find the, what actually, what people want, you know, uh, they don't want heavier shoes. Uh, <laughs> what kind of shoes do they want? Um, 
And I do think heavier shoes is going to have to be the name of this episode, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's anti-utopian for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's, you know, all the angels wear, wear heavy clogs. Um, well, thanks so much for joining us. How can people uh, follow, uh, you know, this thread? Um, if they, uh, if they I would to... say um, go to your local DSA meeting. I will be the guy in the beard and glasses who you know, <laughs> talks too much. Come up, talk to me about it. Um, I may have a slightly different name or, or you know, a different accent, but I'll, I'll be there. Um, if you want to follow, you know, me, the actual person who's saying this, uh, or, you know, one of the many Russian bots that I, that I operate, uh, you can just check me out on Twitter. Show us your work uh, um, is my handle. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the thing for people to do, if I were to say one thing is, uh, one, join DSA, and two, uh, you know, get involved in mutual aid because that is going to be the system. If there's going to be a collapse, a real collapse, the new economy, the new way for people to get sustenance and housing and jobs and food and uh, leisure and companionship, that's, that's going to come out of a mutual aid network of some sort. You know, you, the, the boss that fired you is not going to uh, save you. Um, right. You're never going to see them again. <laughs> yeah. And the government and the government might take six weeks to get back to you. <laughs> so um, you, you're, you're free to jump or you can stay for this last little bit. And I, I, I might ask you a question, uh, Matt, as well. Um, we often do. Uh, okay, great. Uh, so this will just be a short segment, but uh we often do a, a tech tip segment on this show. I um, produced this uh, with Matt's help through my, uh, my consulting firm. And we do uh, really what we do is marketing, um, but specifically for progressives, for progressive ideas, progressive causes. And uh, I was working with someone recently and I, I realized that one of the best pieces of advice is, uh, that you can get is not really technical. It's a, 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 just a marketing tip. And um, I was also struck, I was watching uh, YouTube videos with my son uh, and there's all these, these viral creators. On the left, we're all familiar with, uh, with Patreon and folks uh, financing their creative work through Patreon. Um, but at the end of the day, it comes down to asking for what you want. And uh, I'll like listen to a show and they'll say, I need more Patreon subscribers. Um, if you're watching an Instagram video, it should be uh, saying, hey, uh, follow uh, follow my channel, follow my Instagram, follow my Instagram TV. Uh, here on this podcast, um, we don't need big numbers, but we want you to share it with your friends. We want you to tell uh, people about, uh, you know, that you're coming here to learn uh, more about left organizing, more about technology and organizing, more about how to uh, fight for a system that isn't uh, uh, a neo-feudal uh, economy that rewards the richest of the rich and that has, uh, you know, billionaires running for president all over the place. Um, so, uh, Matt, I guess I was going to ask you on, on Podbean, you know, what, what should people do? The people are listening to this on different podcast platforms. I guess it's subscribe. You can subscribe to the Podbean feed. However, uh, we are also on Spotify and Apple, uh, as well. So subscribe uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Tell your friends. Uh, start your own podcast. And if you're already doing uh, uh, video content, a lot 
there's a lot of content coming out because people are at home right now. Make sure you ask for what you want. Ask people to subscribe. Uh, ask people to share your content. Uh, and let's, uh, let's build a future uh, through uh, actually knowing what's going on with each other. And I, I loved your tip about going up to the bearded guy at the DSA meeting because I'm sure, I'm sure he is there. <laughs> I'm no longer that bearded guy at the DSA <laughs> meeting because A, all of our DSA meetings are online, so you can't go up to me. And B, I, in an act of futile social responsibility, I shaved my beard today uh, and my daughter hates me for it. Uh, and this is so you same. can wear a mask tightly. <laughs> um, you know, you can, you can still talk to people over Zoom. You can, you can get at them through the chat. Uh, you know, you can, you can start talking, uh, virtually. Um, it's a lot easier to email people than to actually walk up to them in person. I'm, yeah. I'm sure. Ah, absolutely. And they will probably respond because they, they have uh, people are a little bit right desperate now. for human contact. Hey, thank you both so much. Stay well and, uh, let's build a better world. Hell yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks All a right. lot. It was a great pleasure to be here.